Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Hey, Bristol Palin's pregnant again, ladies and gentlemen, proving that it's easier to find babies than husbands, I guess. Uh, the uh, big news of the week, of course, was a uh, one piece, a big news week anyway, but one of the major stories was the Supreme Court finding that uh, the right to marriage is a fundamental right protected by the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. Uh, most people have focused on the fact that uh, that means that gay people, same-sex couples, can now get married. But of course, since the 14th Amendment has been uh, d- judged by the uh, Supreme Court uh, also to apply to uh, legal persons, this means that corporations can get married. They don't have to go through the merger thing. Save a lot of money, unless they divorce, of course. Uh, the The discussion about the, the decision of the court has moved very quickly, because of the finality of the decision, to the next step uh, raised by uh, dignitaries, uh, eminences, uh, such as Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal, coincidentally running for president, who uh, now says that the the battle, and others do too, will focus on religious freedom. And um, by that, he means the uh, battle between public accommodation, the public accommodation law that has been in place since the Freedom Riders integrated lunch counters in the South, and religious freedom. Uh, and in that, you know, it basically, can bakers refuse to bake cakes for gay weddings and so forth? Uh, which made me think of the following uh, thought problem. Uh, let's, exa- let's imagine a fundamentalist Muslim store owner or a ultra an ultra-Orthodox Jewish store owner. And he refuses service to an unaccompanied woman who comes into his store because it offends his religious sense that God dictates that unaccompanied women should not be in the presence of male strangers. What do we do about that? Uh, We also learned this week that uh, Confederate flags are coming down everywhere, slowly but surely. And we found out someplace that we didn't, I didn't even know, sold Confederate flags, you know, souvenirs. By the way, in the few places that are still selling them, business is booming. The National Park Service this week pledged to remove Confederate flag merchandise from its bookstores and gift shops. They were selling Confederate flag stuff at at national parks. And perhaps even, although this story doesn't mention that, in the uh, gift shops of the Capitol. I think the Park Service runs those. This is the latest retailer, as you know, to stop selling them. Confederate flags displayed in, uh, depi- depicted in books, DVDs, and other educational items will remain as long as the image cannot be physically detached. Well, you could, you could take some scissors to some pages. Of some... We strive to tell the complete story of America, Park Service Director said. All sa- sales items in parks are evaluated based on educational value and the connection to the park. Any standalone depictions of Confederate flags have no place in park stores. So... If the flags are sitting, you got an argument. Confederate, uh, he said, is up to um, 
park superintendents and store managers to decide what fits the description of having educational value. You learn something almost every day when you listen to Hello, Welcome to the Show. Was the queen of the little red, white, and blue? Said the ooh, why get this fire, boy? Prepare yourself to die, boy. Medicine man got heaps of strong power. You know better than to mess with me. Like a rival of my life, 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 proof. Like a rival, the la 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 boo boo. If you see a spy boy sitting in the bush, mess him on his head, give him a push. Get out the dishes, get out the pain. Ooh, he fell for the medicine man. La 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 From New Orleans, Louisiana, I'm Harry Shearer. Welcome you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for me to read the trades for you. The way the world really is, is reported in America's trade publications. A view from the inside. For us on the outside. I'll read them for you. First from PC World. The U.S. Navy's Warfare Systems Command just paid millions to stay on Windows XP. Oh, I'll read that for you. 
the U.S. Navy, you've heard about it, it's a worldwide force for good, I hear, is paying Microsoft millions of dollars to keep up the, keep up to 100,000 computers afloat because it has yet to transition away from Windows XP. The Space and Naval Warfare Systems Command, which runs the Navy's communications and information network, signed a $9 million contract earlier this month for continued access to security patches for Windows XP Office 2003 and Windows Server 2003. They're paying to be in the Wayback Machine. The entire contract could be worth up to $30 million and extended to 2017. Windows XP and, 2000, uh, and uh, Office 2003 have been deemed obsolete by Microsoft. Windows Server 2003 will reach the end of its life early next month, middle of next month. As a result, Microsoft has stopped issuing free security updates, but will continue to do so on a paid basis for customers like the Navy. I.e., step aside, sucker. The Navy began a transition away from XP a couple years ago, but as of May this year, it still had approximately 100,000 workstations running XP or the other software. The Navy relies on a number of legacy applications and programs that are reliant on legacy Windows products, said Steve Davis, a spokesman for the Space and Naval Warfare Systems Command in San Diego. Until those applications and programs are modernized or phased out, this continuity of services is required to maintain operational effectiveness. Unquote, Davis wouldn't provide more details about the systems or their use, citing cybersecurity policy. But an unclassified Navy document says the Microsoft applications affect, quote, critical command and control systems, unquote, on ships and land-based legacy systems. Affected systems are connected to the government's network for non-classified information and the network for classified information. A plan for migrating to current and supported capabilities has been developed and is being executed, said the spokesperson. Continuing to use the obsolete systems without the Microsoft contract, he said, would be risky. Don't tell ISIS. And from Advertising Age, Lean Cuisine makes a massive pivot away from diet marketing. Diet has become a forbidden four-letter word in the food industry, and Lean Cuisine is the latest brand to swear off weight, weight loss marketing. The struggling frozen meals brand has embarked on a major overhaul that includes new advertising, packaging, and frozen entree options designed to link lean cuisine to modern eating and health trends rather than calorie counting. New meals include sweet and spicy Korean-style beef, Vermont, Vermont white cheddar mac and cheese, pomegranate chicken, and other trendy options. Lean Cuisine brand manager Chris Flora called the new approach a massive pivot for the 34-year-old brand. Consumers most closely associate us with being a diet brand, he said. Yeah, I wonder why. But we recognize that diets are dead, and we want to show that we are truly shifting away from diet. As the new foodie options hit shelves, Lean Cuisine is launching a TV campaign that seeks to build emotional bonds with female consumers by telling stories about how real women exhibit strength in their everyday lives. The campaign is called Feed Your Phenomenal. 
in the one the first commercial features a nurse in Boston who says the brand helps her quote eat the way I want to eat unquote that is to say orally the strategy shift comes as lean cuisine battles headwinds on multiple fronts consumers are not only rejecting diet brands they're increasingly shunning big processed foods in favor of flesh fresher options lean cuisine sales have dropped 20 percent in the past two years fresh is winning winning versus frozen mainly because consumers view fresh as being less artificial and therefore better for you said a marketing executive the situation has grown so dire for frozen food marketers that industry giants like nestle conagra kellogg and general mills joined forces last year to launch a three-year 30 million dollar image campaign called frozen how fresh stays fresh it seeks to portray the freezing process as quote nature's pause button unquote lean cuisine essentially shut down its advertising for 18 months as it plotted new approach we didn't really have a brand soul said flora and for us to really thrive in this marketplace we wanted to find that brand soul In one respect, Lean Cuisine cannot stray too far from its diet roots because it uses the word lean in its name. The brand must adhere to certain standards according to government regulations. Meals must contain less than 10 grams of fat. So it still tastes real good. It reminds me of a Los Angeles burger chain called Fat Burger, which introduced the low-fat Fat Burger. Lean Cuisine, looking for its soul. Who would have known? Had I not read the traits for you, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. You do know that that's uh, where the flavor comes from in food, right? Fat, basically. So, good luck, good luck to them, say we all. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm, won't you? Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. News of the warm. And some qualified good news here. Humans could save the Great Barrier Reef from global warming by transplanting corals that are more tolerant to heat, say scientists. A joint study by the Australian Institute of Marine Science in maybe my favorite named town in the whole world. The imagine the, the just the the uh, verbal imagination that went into naming this this community is something to behold. It's a community called Townsville. And the University of Texas has found a genetic basis for tolerance of higher temperatures in coral. The discovery could pave the way for man-made colonies of coral bred to adapt to hotter oceans, according to the researchers. Says one, averting coral extinction begins with something as simple as exchange of coral immigrants across latitudes, which can be jump-started by humans moving adult corals. All right, we're going alphabetical order. Get in line, you corals. This is occasion for hope and optimism about coral reefs and the marine life that thrive there, said the researcher. The discovery, said uh, an ecologist, is a boon to understanding the potential for coral on the Great Barrier Reef to cope with hotter oceans. 
Researchers crossed individuals of branching corals from the warmer far north of the reef with members of the same species somewhat south. The corals of the north passed on their heat tolerance to their offspring, they found. The study found heat tolerance could hinge largely on mum's genes, the mother's genes, being centered in mitochondria, the powerhouses of the cells that are inherited solely from mothers. Thanks, Mom. So perhaps corals will be celebrating Mother's Day. It's about time. Isla Rasa in the Gulf of California is renowned for its massive aggregations of nesting songbirds, seabirds, sorry, over 95% of the world populations of elegant terns, elegant terns, and Hearman's gulls concentrate unfailingly every year on that tiny island to nest, according to Science Daily. Ever since the phenomenon was described in 1953, the island has been a magnet for tourists, naturalists, filmmakers, and seabird researchers. During some years in the last two decades, though, the seabirds have arrived to the island in April, as they usually do, but leave soon after. No nesting. The first time was the 1998 El Nino, when ocean productivity collapsed all along the eastern Pacific coast. But then colony desertion happened again in 2003, and since then it has recurred with increasing frequency over the last five years. Researchers and conservationists were asking themselves, where are the birds going? A group of researchers from Mexico and the U.S. set out to find out. Their results, published in the journal Science Advances, show that ocean warming and overfishing are producing the ecological collapse of the Gulf of California's productive midriff region. Yes, they're scraping the midriff bare. Using nest counts in seabird colonies from Mexico and California, they found that elegant terns have expanded from the Gulf of Me- California and Mexico into Southern California during the last two decades. That's who's causing all the traffic, but that the expansion fluctuates from year to year. Whenever the terns perceive the conditions in the Gulf as inadequate to ensure successful reproduction, says the head of the project, they move to alternative nesting grounds, including San Diego and Los Angeles Harbor. Wow. Birds would rather live in Los Angeles Harbor. they got to be desperate. And originally famous as an anesthetic gas used by dentists, nitrous oxide is also found in large quantities in nature and has serious effects on the climate. Oh, another, another, another gas that's bad for... In the lower atmosphere, it is a strong greenhouse gas, and in higher layers of the atmosphere, it contributes indirectly to the destruction of ozone. A, climate as- a global assessment of marine nitrous oxide emissions is, however, difficult because we don't know exactly where and how much nitrous oxide is produced, says uh, a chemist from GMR Heimholz Center for Ocean Research in Kiel, K-I-E-L. I don't know where that is. He presents new data in uh, the journal Nature Geoscience showing that the southeast Pacific has been significantly underestimated as a source of nitrous oxide based on three explorations by a German research vessel. When micro here now here's how it works, ladies and gentlemen, in case you're interested. Just have a seat. When microorganisms decompose uh, sorry, um, nutrient rich waters from deeper water layers are transported to the surface um, when certain kinds of climate or weather changes uh, occur. This results in intense plankton growth so close to the surface, which upon death sinks to the, in the water column. When microorganisms decompose the plankton biomass, they thereby, thereby consume more oxygen than can be supplied by surrounding waters, and oxygen concentration decreases. Of all the OMZs, 
These are uh, oxen, uh, oxygen something zones. <laughs> Doesn't Oh, yes, oxygen minimum zones. The one in the Pacific is the largest. We know that oxygen depletion also affects the nitrogen cycle and favors the production of nitrous oxide, says the scientist. So watch for a TV show called ONZ, where the hosts sound like they're choking to death. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Some news from outside the bubble. You remember Tony Blair, the millionaire? Millionaire Tony Blair. Sure. One of his closest allies and political friends has admitted he thought the Iraq war was a mistake and contributed, has contributed to the fairly stark and steep decline of popularity in the party ever since. Uh, this is a man who, in his position as Lord Chancellor, helped make the case for the war for the Blair government in the House of Lords. This comes amid dis, uh, increasing, research, <laughs> increasing concerns, according to the Scotsman newspaper, that the Iraq inquiry, you remember, I've, I've been telling you about this every once in a while, there's an l- ongoing inquiry in Britain into what happened, what happened with the Iraq war. It may not report until next year, besides, in spite of being launched six years ago. Lord Falconer, who was born in Edinburgh, pinned much of the blame on the perception of the Iraq war that many now believe was illegal. He said, we didn't find weapons of mass destruction there, and that was the basis by, went, by which we went in. So on that basis, we weren't right to go in, unquote. They were apartment mates when the two were starting out as lawyers in the 1970s. He admitted the ex-prime minister also believes that. Really? Millionaire Tony Blair? He said, I think the Iraq war damaged labor everywhere, and I think the Iraq war is perceived to be a mistake. He asked who he thought who thought it was a mistake. He said, Labor, Tony Blair. Asked whether now both he and Blair regarded it as a mistake, Lord Falconer said, quote, well, what I'm saying is it did do us some damage. I supported the invasion. Flatmates they were, ladies and gentlemen. So, Labor has um, been paying the price ever since. A little news from outside the bubble. Copyright feature of this broadcast. Um, and now it's time for news of the Olympic movement. News of the Olympic movement. That's how you say it. Produced by Jim Ebersole, Jr. This from Japan. It appears set to proceed with a controversial design, likened by some critics to a giant bike helmet, for its centerpiece stadium for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics despite heated objections to the project. Furthermore, the cost of the project is now predicted at $2.02 billion, a huge rise from the $1.3 billion proposed earlier. Well, it's the Olympics. Prices got to rise. Fish got to swim. Costs got to rise. Iraqi-British architect Zaha Hadid's ultramarine design for the stadium 
winner of the international competition, will be significantly larger and more expensive than its recent predecessors and has faced scathing criticism ever since it was unveiled. In an open letter to the government body in charge of the games, last year leading Japanese architect Arata Isosaki said the site left him in despair, said the stadium would be, quote, a disgrace to future generations, unquote. Well, they don't vote now. The project has seen budget cuts, design revisions, demolition delays, and serious cost blowouts since it was unveiled. Material and construction costs have soared. Rival groups have proposed alternatives to the Hadid design. One group, led by the architect who designed the Tokyo Gymnasium for the 1964 Olympics, they've had it already there, favors altering the design by removing two of its trademark arches running the length of the stadium, thereby reducing the cost significantly. Another group has advocated retrofitting the existing stadium from the 64 Olympics, a solution advocated by, among others, Jeff Kingston, a professor at Tokyo's Temple University, an outspoken critic of the stadium, which he described as a multi-billion dollar white elephant waiting to happen. There are very few events that will require such a massive stadium, one that blights one of Tokyo's green belts, he said. For a fraction of the cost, they could retrofit the old stadium that requires far less maintenance than the new facility. Further, he said, the glitzy and garish design tramples on Japanese aesthetics. It will, its, its curse will be a burden for decades to come, unquote. Well, I guess the Iraqis won the war then. Education minister, whose ministry is overseeing the event, hinted an alternative... The education ministry is overseeing the Olympics. Well, no wonder. Hinted an alternative design could be considered if it could be realistically be implemented ahead of the deadline four years from now when Japan hosts the Rugby World Cup. But another spokesman for the ministry's Sports and Youth Bureau appeared to pour cold water on the idea. The ministry is planning to stay with Zaha's plan as of now, he said. The controversial archers will be retained so they can sell burgers. A final decision on the stadium has yet to be made, but one is likely by the start of July. Why, that's this week. It's almost as exciting as the Olympics itself. The Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. You 
talk about people, you can make me scream. You just talk, talk too much. From CPR, Continental Public Radio, this is All in All. All in All, CPR's daily look between the eyes and under the carpet of today's news. I'm Milton Getzler in Washington. The Supreme Court's decision finding that the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause forbids the banning, uh, sorry, bans the forbidding of same-sex marriage has resulted in a welter of reaction. Joy in gay areas, and something between regret and resistance in many southern states. Ira Zipkin traveled to one Alabama county where that resistance is already in high gear. Murphy Junction, Alabama. It's a quiet little town with resistance in its DNA. Our ancestors uh, kept fighting the war of northern aggression for two whole months after they said it was over. Didn't lose anybody because uh, by that time nobody was shooting back. Judge Jim Pinckney is the justice of the peace in Murphy Junction. He's white-haired, white-bearded, and white. I think this is uh, the only county in Alabama where uh, when the feds came in to supposedly uh, electrify the area, we rode them out of town strapped to mules. <laughs> We didn't get electricity till 1957. And now he's at the head of a new resistance movement to oppose the Supreme Court's decision requiring states to perform same-sex marriages. I know one of my colleagues in a neighboring county has uh, just been refusing to issue marriage licenses to anybody, same-sex or other. I didn't think that went far enough. So as of uh, this past Friday, when we could get the new signs printed up, my office isn't granting any licenses of any kind. You want to open a store? You go to one of those gay marriage counties and do your store opening there. The way I read the Bible, I'm not issuing any more licenses 
until the northern constitution is corrected or until the rapture, whichever comes first. I mean, this is getting ridiculous. First they tell us we can't fly our flags. Now they tell us we can't defy our... <laughs> well, you get the idea. While the judge is reading his Bible, a friend of his a quarter mile down State Route 1223 is reading the court's decision. Far as I can tell, and I'm a learned man in two different languages, only one of which is English, this decision doesn't say anything about marriage being limited to uh, just men or women. Reverend Roger Cheeks is the pastor of the Church of the Most Blessed Nazarene. He wears a clerical collar and work shoes, and he wrote his Ph.D. thesis at Bob Jones University on a new method of proving the existence of angels. So in my capacity as a shepherd of this uh, congregation of folks, I presided this weekend over two weddings. I consecrated the union of a gentleman and his lorikeet, Lonnie. It had taken him several months to teach the bird to say something that sounded like uh, either I do or I chew. And uh, just this morning, I wedded holy matrimony, a dray horse and a leaf blower. So the point of these weddings is just uh, to mock the idea of gay marriage? Well, uh, the, the point of these weddings is that I get $25 for each ceremony over which I preside. But uh, the bigger point, although I don't mean to minify $25, the bigger point is that once you stray off the path of biblical precepts, you're in a hellhole of nonsense. I will say, in all fairness, that the gentleman and Lonnie do seem to be very happy. I haven't been, uh, been able yet to check back on the horse. You know, I, I hear some people from up north near Birmingham uh, saying this is just like uh, equal rights for the black people. But at least when those folks were slaves, and of course I'm, I abhor slavery, but they were happy. Uh, the, the sodomites, by contrast, have always seemed to me to have a, a chip in their shoulder. Across town, two blocks away, Iris Claypool runs the Sunny Side Up Bakery. She has her own form of resistance. Somebody comes in, wants me to bake a cake for a gay wedding. Sooner or later the law's gonna say I can't say no. But there's no law on God's earth that says I have to put frosting on it. This isn't a campaign that's uh, gonna catch on all at once, but uh, by mid-November I guarantee you'll see most everybody in this county getting on board, if only to stop getting the parking tickets. <laughs> on my way out of town before darkness falls, I'm Ira Zipkin in Murphy Junction, Alabama. And for this edition, that's all from All in All. Help for All in All comes from the Grantham Foundation. A brighter future, a brighter past. Take your pick. And from the Corporation for Potluck Broadcasting. Join us next time for more All in All. This is CBR, Continental Public Radio. What the frack, ladies and gentlemen? This is Lashaw, by the way. 
A spike in earthquakes across Oklahoma is forcing the state's energy regulator to urgently consider tougher restrictions on drilling activities. A spokesman said this week, calling it, quote, a game changer. From June 17 to 24, that's just like last week, there have been 35 earthquakes of magnitude 3.0 or greater in Oklahoma. Particularly worrying for regulators, some of the recent quakes occurred in the Oklahoma City metropolitan area where there are no high-volume wastewater injection wells. The spike in quakes comes roughly two months after new rules governing the disposal of briny wastewater from drilling took full effect. Drillers were directed by the Oklahoma Corporation Commission, which regulates the oil and gas industry, to stop disposing wastewater below the state's deepest rock formation, which is believed to be one of the main causes of the quakes and to reduce the depth of wells that already go that deep. We have to approach it anew, says Matt Skinner, a spokesman for the Corporation Commission. There's been a huge increase. That's a game changer, he says, referring to the recent jump in tremors. If tremors, in, fee- in fact, can jump. Oh, white tremors can't. We know that. Oklahoma's been grappling with a rise in seismic activity since 2009, amid the expansion of drilling activity that has doubled the state's oil output in the last seven years. The energy boom has created jobs and contributed to state tax coffers, but many residents are deeply uneasy about the earthquakes. Oklahoma has become ground zero, and the oil industry struggled to break the connection between production and earthquakes. It was not immediately clear why there was a spike in the last eight days. Prior, quakes of magnitude 3 or greater typically hit Oklahoma once or twice a day. Prior to 2009, there were only one or two such quakes in the state in a year. That's progress. We're making more quakes. Scientists attribute the general rise in tremors to soaring amounts of salty wastewater (laughs) being injected underground. Injected liquid volumes have doubled from uh, 1997 to now. The drilling boom is due in part, of course, to the expanded use of fracking to access oil and gas in tight shale formations. I think the uh, San Francisco 49ers used those uh, last season. The salty wastewater being injected into Oklahoma's wells is found naturally in formations along with the oil and gas and are not fracking fluids, the chemical contents of which a little too private for us to know. Uh, Other oil and gas states have also experienced increased seismic activity related to expanded water injection. Arkansas has a moratorium on disposal wells in the most sensitive areas. That's a plan favored by some in Oklahoma. But most of Oklahoma's elected officials have been reluctant to shackle the industry. The U.S. Geological Survey says an increase in small tremors heightens the possibility of a catastrophic quake in the future. And the reaction to that from a Republican member of the the state legislature, if there's damage and loss of life, you'll see the political climate absolutely change overnight. When and if that happens, you'll have a cloud that hangs over the energy sector for the rest of our lives, unquote. Until then... Inject away. What the frack. Ladies and gentlemen, some, um, some good news for those who are just, you know, basically interested in who we are, how we came to be who we are. This uh, is new information. A study of, a, of the DNA of a man who lived 40,000 years ago in present-day Romania found he had a Neanderthal relative as few as four generations back. The most Neanderthal ancestry ever seen in a modern human, that would be. 
Genetic analysis of a 37 to 42,000-year-old jawbone, that's a 5,000-year range, that's pretty close, found in Romania, revealed the highest concentration of Neanderthal DNA so far discovered in a human ancestor, indicating the individual had a Neanderthal relative dating back only four to six generations. These findings were published in the journal Nature this week. They show that the individual's close relatives interbred with Neanderthals in Europe. It had previously been thought that interbreeding between humans and Neanderthals had only occurred earlier, 50 to 60,000 years ago, when the two species mixed in the Middle East as the humans were first leaving Africa. It was sort of a welcome wagon kind of a deal. The data from the jawbone implied that humans mixed with Neanderthals not in, just in the Middle East, but in Europe as well, says one of the lead researchers of the study. Six to nine percent of the man's genome came from Neanderthals, more than any other human sequenced to date. The researchers hope the finding will shed light on the process of the disappearance, why, why the Neanderthals disappeared. The individual uh, whose jawbone they found does not seem to have any direct descendants in Europe today, said uh, a researcher from Harvard Medical School who worked on the study. And maybe he was part of an early migration of modern humans to Europe. They interacted closely with Neanderthals, but eventually became extinct. Well, okay, but let's, let's just be honest. What could possibly attract a human to a Neanderthal? Here's a possible answer. The planet's creatures But not one shares your fetching features You've got it all So Neanderthal Just one glimpse of your prominent brow Makes me want to get it on right now So strong, so tall So Neanderthal
Ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. For the first time since a crisis erupted over deadly defects and air, defects in airbags made by his family's company, the reclusive chief executive of the Japanese supplier Takata publicly addressed the issue this week. He offered an apology, but defended the company's products as fundamentally safe. I apologize from my heart, not from the bottom of it, just from the whole heart. To those who have died or been injured, says the chief executive, Shigehisa Takara, after bowing deeply in a show of remorse, I feel a heavy responsibility. Yet, Takara, the 49-year-old grandson of the company's founder, did not explain why he'd remained all but absent during the crisis that had been in full boil for over a year. Even after Toyota and Nissan said this week they would recall 2.86 million more vehicles equipped with the airbags than first announced, Takara pushed back against suggestions he should resign over the largest automobile safety recall in history. Hey, you made history, babe. PBS has uh, apologized for the uh, program Finding Your Roots. Actually, the uh, executive producer of the program because they broadcast a, uh, an edition where that, that eliminated reference to Ben Affleck's relatives because they owned slaves because Ben Affleck didn't want a program that said his family had slave owners. I sincerely regret not discussing my editing rationale with our partners at PBS and WNET and I apologize for putting PBS and its member stations in the position of having to defend the integrity of their programming. In its investigation, PBS said producers violated network standards by letting Affleck have improper influence and by failing to inform PBS of Affleck's efforts to affect program content. Former Catholic primate of all Ireland, Sean Brady. Sean Brady now is a primate. Okay, you, you do the jokes then. Has said he wanted to express his horror and to offer an unreserved apology to all those affected as a result of the crimes of convicted pedophile former priest Brendan Smythe. The cardinal is appearing before the historical institutional abuse inquiry in Northern Ireland. The cardinal committed the courage of the 14-year-old boy who came forward in 1975. He said, unfortunately, the response to his complaint was neither adequate nor effective for this. I'm truly sorry. More about that in a moment. In News of the Godly. Deadline Seoul, South Korea, the heir of the Samsung business empire, bowed deep in apology this week as criticism mounted over Samsung's hospital role in spreading Middle East respiratory syndrome in South Korea. Lee Jae-yung apologized to MERS victims and patients in his first public speech since taking over the Samsung Foundation last month. Out of 175 MERS patients in South Korea, 85 were at the Samsung hospital in Seoul. I bow my head to apologize he said. Meet the press host Chuck Todd apologized this week for a segment about gun violence on last week's program, which only featured people convicted of murder 
which featured people convicted of murder, all of whom were black. The video was planned and reduced, produced well ahead of the shooting deaths at the church in South Carolina. We decided against delaying the segment because we wanted to show multiple sides of what gun violence does in this country. The consequences of gun violence should not be hidden, said Todd. We've heard you, we clearly got it wrong, and we are sorry. In response to a lot of Twitter criticisms or twitticisms of uh, the way that segment turned out. Dateline Edmonton, Alberta, Premier Rachel Notley, not Nutley, not Notley, apologized this week on behalf of Alberta to indigenous peoples for abuse in residential schools and added her voice to an inquiry for missing and murdered Aboriginal women. We want the First Nation and Inuit people of Alberta to know that we deeply regret the profound harm and damage that occurred to generations of children forced to attend residential schools, she said. Although the province did not establish this system, members of this chamber at the time did not take a stand against it. And for this silence, we apologize. Earlier this month, the National Truth and Reconciliation Commission had heard testimony about what went on in those schools, more than a century of institutionalized abuse of generations of Aboriginal children in residential schools. Youngsters forcibly separated from their families endured loneliness, cruelty, and physical and mental abuse tantamount to cultural genocide. In Canada, eh? Wow. But there's, wait, there's more. There's more right here. I got it for you. A national, a nationalist politician who serves in the Greek parliament apologized Wednesday for a Facebook post in which he compared his nation's suffering under austerity measures imposed by its European creditors, including Germany, to the plight of Jews slaughtered in the Nazi death camp at Auschwitz. Oh. Holocaust analogy apology. The legislator drew a sharp rebuke from Greece's Jewish community for posting an image of Auschwitz where the sign, Work Sets You Free, had been changed to the Greek for, we're staying in Europe. And former Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega broke a 19-year silence to ask his compatriots this week to forgive actions by his military regime that culminated in the 1989 U.S. invasion. He hadn't spoken to a journalist since Larry King in 1996. We had some uh, pastrami. No, he didn't. Uh, He did speak to Larry King. He has returned to Panama in 2011 to complete a 60-year sentence for murder, corruption, and embezzlement, referring to himself as the last general of the military era. He apologized for his actions. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature. Oh, no, no, sorry. There's one more. Um, On MSNBC earlier this week, uh, Chris Hayes, who is on opposite Bill O'Reilly, misquoted Bill O'Reilly, quoted him as saying... uh, uh, the Confederate flag uh, denoted bravery when, in fact, O'Reilly was saying that some people in the South thought that. Here is uh, Chris Hayes on the protocol of quoting other people. And the cardinal rule of this practice is to make sure when you clip someone else or quote them, you do it in proper context. And we failed to do that with a quote I attributed to Bill O'Reilly the other night. In a segment on the Confederate flag, I said that Bill O'Reilly said it represents the bravery of Confederates who fought in the Civil War. And while it's true, O'Reilly literally uttered the words, it stands for bravery, while talking about the flag, it's also quite clear from the context of the discussion he was having, he was not giving his own views, but talking about how some other people view or understand the flag. We should not have attributed that view to him. Fair is fair. We got it wrong. And I apologize. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. A copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now... (laughs) 
News of the Godly. More about that father Smythe in, in Ireland. Two teenage boys abused by him were interrogated by three priests after speaking out, and they were asked whether they had enjoyed their sexual abuse. The harrowing details of how the victims were treated by the church was revealed at that inquiry. Former head of the Catholic Church in Ireland, Cardinal Sean Brady, issued an unreserved apology, giving evidence that it was emerged that Cardinal Brady was present at separate meetings in 1975 with both the boys, then aged 14 and 15. The hearing heard that victim A was questioned by three priests. His father was not allowed in the room during the interrogation, although Cardinal Brady saw his father in the halls afterwards. He testified this week. His father should have been present, he said. A second victim who came forward was also interrogated by three priests. He was asked 32 questions by three priests. His parents were not informed before or after that the meeting had taken place. Both victims were made to sign oaths promising to never talk about the allegations apart from anyone with anyone apart from, quote, authorized priests. Both boys were also asked whether they had liked the abuse. Victim B was even asked this question twice. Both boys responded by saying, no. Cardinal Brady was asked, did he cringe in horror that that question had been asked to the victims? He said, absolutely. While he wasn't defending the question, the idea behind them was to build as robust a case as possible against Father Smith. Smythe. Smith. Smythe. you got to be robust. Doggone it, you got to be robust. And the Archdiocese of St. Paul and Minneapolis officials are worried that criminal charges filed against the Archdiocese might compromise insurance coverage for clergy sex abuse by helping insurers deny claims. The county attorney has charged the archdiocese with six gross misdemeanors for allegedly failing to protect the victims of a former St. Paul priest. Most of the archdiocese faces fines of $18,000, not too much for an organization with millions. The archdiocese has warned in a recent bankruptcy filing that a criminal conviction may affect its insurance coverage for existing and future sex abuse claims. Uh, the uh, insurance coverage would be precluded because most insurance policies don't cover intentional or criminal acts. The financial stakes are high. During the last 10 years, the nation's Catholic dioceses and other entities reported incurring more than $2.7 billion in sex abuse costs, settlements, victim therapy, offender support, and attorney's fees. Insurance covered 32% of those costs. News of the godly, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. You know, the, uh, the late hotelier, Mr. Ritz, gave his name to an adjective describing class. It's Ritzy. Uh, and a hotelier of our era, I think, should have his name attached to uh, behavior of a slightly lower level. It's not class. It's not Ritzy. It's Trumpy. Apropos, final apology of the week, the president of Univision, who compared Donald Trump to Charleston shooter Dylan Roof, 
has apologized. I'm a Mexican who was very upset by Mr. Trump's recent comments about Mexican immigrants, but I should not have reposted a photo that was insulting. Trump had, and, and has said again, that uh, people who are coming over the border from Mexico are rapists and criminals. It's not ritzy, it's Trumpy. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to complete this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations, over NPR worldwide throughout Europe, use and 440 cable system in Japan, around the world, through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America by the shortwave giant WBCQ. On the Mighty 104 in Berlin, around the world, via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want at harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through stitcher.com and available as a free podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, and TuneIn.com. And it'd be just like the whole world being Trumpy if you'd agree to join with me then. Well, you already? Thank you very much, uh-huh. A little show farewell to New Orleans musical legend Harold Batiste, who arranged the Dr. John and Joe Jones songs and a lot of classic New Orleans R&B on today's program. Didn't arrange the uh, Neanderthal song. And a tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Exile, and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson here at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, yes, there's still email, and a playlist of the music heard here on, and Cars I Talk t-shirts available at harryshare.com. Want to stay in touch with me during the week? I want to stay in touch with you. <laughs> the Harry Shearer on Twitter. Let's keep the conversation going. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from New Orleans, Louisiana.